0: The understanding of how American freedom was lost in and through the judiciary should already be visible just from our discussions on the previous topics. We've seen how the John Marshall courts energized and applied the centralizing effects of the Constitution and the power of the Federalist coup in the areas of localism, states' rights, commerce, money, banking, taxation, and there will be more. The precedent set by Marshall's activism was embraced by later justices who picked it up and ran with it in the areas of education, at welfare, and again, there's much more. Legislation by the bench has been an American tradition, tyrannical as it may be, since the very beginning. If you remember correctly, the establishment of a single national Supreme Court was one of the major issues objected to by the anti-federalists. Candidus, uh, one of the writers, warned that the court would, quote, occasion innumerable controversies. A friend to the rights of the people said the Supreme Court may, quote, prove a source of mischief and ruin to thousands, by which, quote, the course of public justice may be much obstructed, the poor oppressed, and many undone. An old Whig, called the court's constitutional appellate power, quote, destructive to the principles of liberty, and yet this power could not be extinguished even by legislation. Brutus, as we've noticed before, uh, gave the clearest warning, quote, if the legislature pass any laws inconsistent in the senses the judges put upon the Constitution, they will declare it void, and therefore in this respect their power is superior to that of the legislature. He saw the great danger of unelected and unaccountable judges to the future peace of this country. Again a quote, when the power is lodged in the hands of men independent of the people and of their representatives and who are not constitutionally accountable for their opinions, no way is left to control them but with a high hand and an outstretched arm. For reasons such as this, the federal farmer believed, quote, we are in more danger of sowing the seeds of arbitrary government in this department than in any other. He saw the established state courts as largely adequate and warned against expansion. Again, quote, judicial power is of such a nature that when we have ascertained and fixed its limits, with all the caution and precision we can, it will yet be formidable, somewhat arbitrary and despotic. That is, after all our cares, we must leave a vast deal to the discretion and interpretation, to the wisdom, the integrity, and the politics of the judges." The politics of the judges indeed became a major factor. The American judiciary was politically compromised from very early on, as most court appointees held nationalist sympathies. We've mentioned how Marshall spent his career legislating Hamilton's state papers from the bench. It was much more widespread than just Marshall. His brand of judicial activism trickled down into all the inferior courts as well. The district court was crawling with partisanship. In 1793, a Federalist civil servant, quote, commented that the federal judiciary had assumed a party complexion. In that same year, William Ellery wrote to Alexander Hamilton saying of those federal judges, quote, they have become a band of political preachers. Another critic in 1797 said, quote, it has become a regular practice of the federal judges to make political discourses to the grand jurors throughout the United States. These men were politically committed before they even got to the bench. Out of 28 district court judges, during the nationalist-dominated 1790s, 21 of them had been politically active in support for the Federalist cause. And out of those, 14 had been delegates to the Constitutional Convention, or at least to the state ratifying conventions. Only three ever even questioned nationalization, and those came out to favor it in the end. Throughout their careers, these judges remained active in party politics and often were described or even boasted themselves in those terms. For example, Nathan Chipman of Vermont was one of the state's, quote, major political strategists and an effective, unscrupulous practitioner of magnate politics. Federal judges during this era openly participated in party meetings and election campaigns. Some did not shy from private uh, intimidation. Judge James Duane, who was a former delegate to the Constitutional Convention, he was also a member of the Hamilton Cabal of New York, owned large tracts of rental property in upstate New York. He is described as a powerful landlord who would, quote, exert undue pressures on his tenants at election time. Duane's partisan eagerness took him too far eventually when he seized French ships in violation of existing treaties. When he was confronted by uh, fellow Federalists and the Secretary of State, even, Edmund Randolph, for that offense, the whole New York cabal cited a Jeffersonian conspiracy of the partisans of the, quote, French sans culottes, who were, of course, the revolutionaries of the French Revolution. It was a propaganda effort, but it failed, and Duane was eventually forced to resign. And of course, being the main part of their job, the judicial decisions reflected these men's biases. Uh, one case, District Judge David Sewell of Maine, used his bench to bully a jury into a guilty verdict against people who were po- his political rivals. Certain defendants had been charged with violating the what was very unpopular, the Jay Treaty. And according to one historian, quote, Sewell instructed the jury to find him guilty. And in his charge to the jurors, he pointed out that both the defendant and his defense attorney were political political opponents of the government and the Constitution. After John Adams' Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, the Federalist political activism grew even more overt and pervasive. Despite the despotic nature of the acts themselves, which allowed Adams to deport people who merely criticized him or or the government in print, which was a blatant infraction of the First Amendment, a full half of the sitting district court judges eagerly enforced the new laws. In various politically motivated cases during this time, political rivals in court were specifically targeted as as examples, they were ridiculed and mocked in court, they were denied copies of court documents pertaining to their own hearings, and they had the jury stacked against them on purpose, which was a practice that was encouraged and promoted by the judges. They were refused time to prepare adequate defense, and they were even rushed to trial without their lawyers being present. The historian who relates all this concludes, What happened in the district and circuit courts in the 1790s cannot simply be written off as the bias of a few partisan judges involved in a handful of isolated cases. Political activism helped loosen political emotions and corrupt the objectivity of otherwise distinguished, highly qualified jurists in every part of the nation. Thus, it may be said, if an independent federal judiciary did emerge as a basic building block of American liberties, it was a lodgment that took place only after the generation of the Founding Fathers. It is clear that both the first United States district and circuit courts were among the most thoroughly politicized federal judicial institutions in American history. Among the most annoyed by judicial partisanship in this area, in this era was the most outstanding spokesman of the rival party, which is, of course, Thomas, and, uh, Thomas Jefferson. He was involved directly in the landmark case which Marshall Alley-ooped for himself, Marbury versus Madison of 1803. As Secretary of State under Adams and in the waning days of that administration, Marshall signed and sealed several appointments of so-called midnight judges uh, to further pack the judicial system with Federalist activists. But upon the change of administration, Jefferson took office and he forbade the secretary, who was then Madison, to deliver those letters. But Marshall had orchestrated the whole thing. One of the appointees, William Marbury, Filed suit to obtain his office anyway. The court went, or the case went to the Supreme Court, by which time Marshall had been sworn in as the Chief Justice, and Marshall decided the case that he set up. So, while a Secretary of State, he tossed the case up in the air, and then he moved over to the Justice position and slam dunked it. And in deciding it, he made it very clear. Uh, actually, he made a very clever move. He used the judicial function of the court itself to declare that the court itself had no jurisdiction to decide the case. And in the process of that decision, he declared that the Judicial Act of 1789, which had given the Supreme Court uh, power to hear such cases, was actually unconstitutional. And so Marshall used the trivial case of Mr. Marbury as a Trojan horse to trump legislation with judicial dictum and the activity has since been called the doctrine of judicial review. Jefferson was quite perturbed by Marshall's activism. Late in his life, in a letter to Justice William Johnson, whom Jefferson had actually appointed in 1804, much earlier, Jefferson gave this opinion. The practice of Judge Marshall, of traveling out his case to prescribe what the law would be in a moot case not before the court, is very irregular and very censurable. I I recollect another instance, and the more particularly perhaps, because it in some measure bore on myself. Among the midnight appointments of Mr. Adams were commissions to some federal justices of the Peace for Alexandria. These were signed and sealed by him, but not delivered. I found them on the table of the Department of State. On my entrance into office, I forbade their delivery. Marbury, named in one of them, applied to the Supreme Court for a mandamus to the Secretary of State, Mr. Madison, to deliver the commission intended for him. The court determined at once that being an original process, they had no cognizance of it, and therefore the question before them was ended. But the Chief Justice went on to lay down what the law would be had they had the jurisdiction of the case to wit that they should command the delivery. The object was clearly to instruct any other court having the jurisdiction what they should do if, if Marbury should apply to them. Besides the impropriety of this gratuitous interference, could anything exceed the perversion of law? And yet this case of Marbury and Madison is continually cited by Bench and bar as if it were settled law, without any animadversion on its being merely an obiter dissertation of the Chief Justice." Now that letter written in 1823 is a long lament of how the Nationalist Federalist Party had already corrupted so much of what America had promised to be. This included the tyrannical power of her court system for which the Bill of Rights was no match. The states supposed, he said, that by their Tenth Amendment They had secured themselves against constructive powers. They were not lessened yet by Cohen's case, that was in 1821, I believe, nor aware of the slipperiness of the eels of the law. I ask for no straining of words against the general government, nor yet against the states. I believe the states can best govern our home concerns and the general government our foreign ones. I wish, therefore, to see maintained that wholesome distribution of powers, established by the Constitution for the limitation of both, and never to see all offices transferred to Washington, where, further withdrawn from the eyes of the people, they may more secretly be bought and sold as at market." These constructive powers and the slipperiness of the eels of the law, Jefferson by this late age knew all too well. In his 1791 argument with Hamilton over the establishment of a national bank, Jefferson fought these powers with his strict construction view of the Constitution. He was joined by Madison against Hamilton, who argued that Congress had the power to do anything necessary as a means to its end. And this included incorporating a national bank, even though no such animal was mentioned anywhere in the Constitution as a congressional power. Instead, Hamilton and Marshall, of course, would argue such a means to an end was an implied power. In this debate, though Madison sided with Jefferson on the constitutionality of the bank bill in particular, his own writings came back to bite him. For he himself had written of the very necessary and proper clause in the Federalist Constitution in the Federalist Papers number 44. He said, No axiom is more clearly established in law or in reason that wherever the end is required, the means are authorized. Wherever a general power to do a thing is given, every particular power necessary for doing it is included. It was nothing less than this, quote, original intent of the Constitution which Hamilton and his party wished to leverage. For the necessary end of solidifying public credit a national bank should be authorized. And when Madison's own words were recalled on the floor of Congress, the debate was over. The two sides and the personal written admonitions of uh, Jefferson and Hamilton reached their final battle, battleground upon Washington's desk. and The president sided with his secretary of treasury and the bank was born. Thus prevailed the doctrine of broad construction and implied powers of the Constitution, a doctrine by which the rule of law becomes a wax nose wrung in the hands of judicial activists. It was this same doctrine Marshall upheld, applied, and elucidated in McCulloch v. Maryland, which was another bank case, by the way. He says this, quote, the subject is the execution of those great powers on which the welfare of a nation essentially depends. It must have been the intention of those who gave these powers to ensure, so far as prudence could ensure, as human prudence could ensure, their beneficial execution. This could not be done by confiding the choice of means to such narrow limits as not to leave it in the power of Congress to adopt any which might be appropriate and which were conducive to the end. This provision is made in a constitution intended to endure for ages to come and, consequently, to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs." Now, this, of course, places a tremendous premium on the opinions and the decisions of the leadership, particularly the judges and those who are in positions to influence legislation, as was Hamilton. In short, broad construction view of the Constitution immediately breeds elitism and cronyism. The historian Carl Prince notes the elitism of the judicial activists of his era, of that era, quote, the Federalist judges believed that talented, superior men like themselves, by virtue of their inherent stature, could stretch and dilute their judicial mandate with impunity in the best interests of the nation and its people as they saw those interests. This is the exact same elite impulse by which every other politician, government official, senator, president, and judge has decided that they too have the ability to reinterpret and and bend the law as they see fit. From Hamilton and Marshall to the leftist activists of more recent decades, indeed it could be said that the living Constitution view of later partisans like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., uh, Louis Brandeis, Woodrow Wilson, the Earl Warren Court, and all of the radicals of today is a direct, logical outworking of the so-called broad construction view of John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton and, of course, George Washington as well. Indeed, Marshall's landmark decision in McCulloch provides one of the key evidences that the modern liberal proponents of the living Constitution turn to for, uh, for their favor. There is a fundamental problem with such elitism, however, and that happens Uh, That is, what happens when elected leaders, and especially unelected leaders, depart from the traditional values and the foundations of law? In that case, you have not only a judicial tyranny, but you have a judicial deconstruction of society. And when such degeneration of legislative and especially judicial values is simultaneously entrusted with the, broad, with the power of broad construction and, and alleged implied powers in the Constitution, you've got a recipe for the decay of the whole civilization. And for this reason, the anti-federalists warned of undue trust being placed in those great leaders. As we've seen, Candidus foresaw a time when the, when the illustrious elites would not be available. He said this, Though this country is now blessed with a Washington, a Franklin, a Hancock, and an Adams, posterity may have reason to rue the day when their political welfare depends on the decision of men who may fill uh, places of these worthies. Another one, again, an old Whig, great writer, announced the same morning. He said, quote, we ought not to repose all our liberty and all our happiness in the virtue of our future leaders. Idolatry is the parent of errors in politics as well as religion, and an implicit confidence in our rulers now will be abused as much as implicit confidence in priests ever was in the days of superstition. For this reason, he concluded, quote, if we perish in America, we shall have no better comfort than the same mortifying reflection that we have been the cause of our own destruction. True to the warnings, strange leaders did arise. New values did present themselves. Constitutional lawyer Herb Titus explains how in 1887, Oliver Wendell Holmes, quote, overthrew a 600-year-old tradition with a single paragraph. The paragraph was from Holmes' attack uh, on the common law. Quote, The life of law has not been logic, it has been experience. The felt necessities of the time, the prevalent moral and political theories, institutions of public policy, even the prejudices which judges share with their fellow men, primarily determine the rules by which men should be governed. The law embodies the story of a nation's development through many centuries. In order to know what it is, we must know what has been and what it tends to become. Holmes' disciple Louis Brandeis uh, replaced all former Supreme Court precedent with Holmes' view in a 1938 decision of Erie Railroad Company versus Tompkins. In that case, Brandeis proclaimed it a, quote, fallacy to assume there is any, quote, transcendental body of law by which federal or state courts could judge common cases. Instead, only the laws of state legislatures or opinions of state Supreme Courts could stand as binding. In other words, only the laws of men and their institutions are valid. There is no such thing as a transcendent law that is God's law. Out of these same humanist-driven court precedents has come Supreme Court protection for abortion, for easy divorce, for homosexual marriage, and that's just to name a few. And thus, the very means for making an allegedly strong, dependable nation under Marshall and Hamilton became the means for making an unstoppably progressive, liberal nation, a massive welfare state built on a warfare state, under Wilson, under FDR, under LBJ, and the list goes on. Now, perhaps one of the most egregious offenses came with the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, particularly the 14th. While certainly aiming at some admirable goals, this amendment essentially became the means for extending central government powers into every crevice of American life, under the guise of the Due Process Clause. This includes, by the way, Roe versus Wade. The amendment basically reverses the original intent of the Bill of Rights, which was per- to protect freedoms of state from encroachments. Or legislation by the national government. Now the Supreme Court uses the 14th Amendment as a means of interpreting and enforcing upon the states, lower governments and citizens by the way, a whole array of laws allegedly implied in the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. Thus what was intended as a control upon the central government has become the central government's control of the people. This judicial tyranny is so much the case that Raoul Berger, famous Harvard Law graduate and writer, wrote a book called Government by Judiciary in 1977, and he said this, quote, The Fourteenth Amendment is the case study par excellence of what Justice Harlan described as the Supreme Court's exercise of the amending power. It's continuing revising of the Constitution under the guise of interpretation. There's so much more we could say in this regard. Uh, that we could write an entire book just on the subject of judicial uh, tyranny in America, and indeed whole books have been written on that subject. But what we've seen so far here uh, should be enough for you to see just how the idea of biblical courts described in the first section of this study has been absolutely treaded upon and obliterated by political partisanship from the early moments of this constitutional republic. And the precedents of elitism and broad construction, which were established by the very men who brought that constitution about, became the very tools of judicial activism which demolished the moral and spiritual foundations of our legal heritage. And these are just the political considerations. We've not even really touched upon corporate influences, except we did mention the banks, uh, which joined in the political powers in perverting our uh, Our court systems. The decline and the degradation are very clear. The question, of course, is what can we do to reestablish our freedom in the court system? Well, there are indeed some things we can do, and we'll discuss them in the next section.